Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hey, welcome back to Spooky Psychology. My name is Lauren Malika. My name is Megan Baker. And today we're talking about serial killers. (laughs) (laughs) So this is our first, like, real episode. If you guys skipped the intro, we get it. I don't. Okay, I get it. Lauren doesn't. Some people want to jump right to the serial killers, so I, I understand. So if you didn't listen to the first one, we are both licensed clinicians. I am a marriage and family therapist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So, um, we wanted to break down um, serial killers from a psychological perspective, because that is our expertise. Mm. And um, we wanted to share with you guys uh, the research that we found, and kind of take a deeper dive into a couple well-known serial killers, and Mm -hmm. what kind of made them be who they are. Yeah, so, um, first things first, let's just make the general statement that neither Lauren nor I can diagnose these serial killers as we've never met them before. They are not our clients. We have not assessed them. So we can theorize, but we cannot conclusively say. I think that there may be diagnoses that we talk about. Those are diagnoses that other therapists have given these people that have met them, but we will discuss that. Yes. Um, We also wanted to quickly just bring up trigger warnings for this um obviously we are talking about serial killers so with that um you know it's there's going to be some sensitive information that we bring up and we just wanted to make sure people are prepared for that yeah and the serial killer that i will be discussing there's also like trigger warnings for child abuse and corpse mutilation and just lots of stuff because he's really just the worst so Lots of tr- just general trigger warning for just about everything for the serial killer I will be discussing. Okay, and we're going to do our best to also share our sources because we did do some research. This did not just come from the top of our heads. <laughs> Maybe we'll just like link our sources in the episode description so you guys can see. I feel like if we're citing verbally every time, it's going to get a little bit confusing. You might hate us. Yeah, you might hate us. So we'll, we'll probably bring up a few, but I will link them. Yeah. That seems to be the standard podcast thing. You link in descriptions. <laughs> Rate and subscribe. <laughs> Rate and subscribe. Like our channel. Like it. Give us money through Patreon, question mark? I don't, I don't know, know what we're doing we here. We may we'll start see. one. I don't know. Who knows? We do like to get money. Generally speaking... Um, if you want to give us your money, you can. I mean, we're not going to stop you, but we may ask some questions. <laughs> <laughs> what is this for, exactly? Why are you paying us? But, uh, yeah, so looks like I'm going to start us off. Did you have any general top-of-the-show notes before we get started? No, I feel like, yeah, I don't got much right now. Okay, okay. If I think of anything, I'll just chime in. All right, perfect. All right, so up until the 1970s, serial killers were generally called mass murderers by both the criminal justice system and the media. Uh, The term serial killer, as many people know, was coined by the late FBI agent and profiler Robert Ressler. 
If you want to learn more about Robert Ressler, I'm just going to plug the book Whoever Fights Monsters. There's a lot of good stuff in there about the creation of all of this, so... Yeah. He also, I believe, is who Mind Hunters is based off of. You're if you've right. Seen Mind Hunters. That that's is who we're correct. talking about. So that's Robert Ressler. Um, so according to the story, and if you've seen Mind Hunter, uh, Ressler was re- lecturing at the British Police Academy in England in 1974, where he heard the description of some crimes as occurring in series, including rapes, arson, burglary, robberies, and murder. And Ressler basically said that it reminded him of the movie industry term serial adventures, which referred to um, basically short episodic films featuring people like Batman, Lone Ranger, shown in theaters on Saturday afternoons during the 1930s and 1940s, which sounds pretty dope. Um, But yeah, that's how he kind of came up with that idea. The FBI agent recalled that from his youth, um, no episode had a satisfactory conclusion, and at the end of each one, it increased, rather decreased, the tension in the viewer. So similarly, Ressler believed that each one, or believed the conclusion of every murder increases the tension and desire for the serial killer to commit a more perfect murder in the future, one closer to his or her ideal fantasy. So rather than being satisfied when they murder, serial killers are instead agitated toward repeating their killings in an unending serial cycle. Very interesting. Interessante, right? So I think I should also just clarify now that this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to focus more on male serial killers. We will talk about female serial killers in the future. Yes. So a lot of this general information applies to both, but some specific things we'll talk about more in detail in female serial killers. Ladies night. Ladies night. (laughs) Take back the night, ladies. (laughs) That's like the take back the night is like a joke that at the live show on female serial killers I really wanted to make but I wasn't like sure if it would go over well because female serial killers are actually on the rise right now and so I wanted to be like maybe not what we meant by take by the night but like good take back the night like good effort anybody killing anybody no no don't kill anyone but actually female serial killers are currently on the rise which is interesting Um, so now some other Fun facts, some little stats on serial killers. I know statistics is everybody's favorite portion of any presentation. We love it. I think it's actually really interesting. So, like, I do too. And it's reported that up to 49 victims of serial killings were identified in the U.S. alone as early as the 1900s. So I think a lot of us think of serial killers as, like, starting in the 70s, but it goes back pretty far. People have kind of always been messed up, and so this is not, like, a new phenomenon. In 2015, it was reported that 30 separate serial killers were identified in the United States. So, still a current thing. Again, we tend to associate it with the 70s. There's some uh, theories that there's a couple serial killers who are uh, truck drivers who just roam around the states murdering people at truck stops. I so believe that. Especially with, um, you know, thinking about, like, the victims. Like, there's just so much, like stigma you know with sex workers Mm -hmm. so it doesn't get taken seriously yeah so and there's a lot you know runaways so you know word to the wise don't hitchhike don't get in a truck don't don't do it that (laughs) not saying that all truck drivers are serial killers some are great some are amazing there have been a few reported that have actually been like 
conclusively like shown that are truck drivers. So there are a few. Just in general, a lot of serial killers have historically tried to get people by hitchhiking. So just don't get into people's cars. We don't recommend. No, that. not and, at all. And you know, just from like a perspective, just that I think is interesting. Um, the research that I found about truck drivers is like. It's a very lonely and depressing job. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times, you know, there's drugs involved. There's all sorts of stuff involved. So I think kind of keeping that in mind, too. Yeah, I think it's just there's a lot going on there. Nothing against any of our truck driver listeners. We love you. saying you're serial killers. Yeah, one of my friends, her husband's a truck driver, and he's totally normal. Totally nice. (laughs) Or so you know. Or so I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um. You know, actually, the highest number of female serial killers were identified in the early 1900s. So, again, we're on the rise, again, as serial killers, but there was really a pretty large group um, in the 1900s of female serial killers. Um, So, we all kind of have this common profile perception of what a serial killer is, but in the FBI database, they uncovered that 7.7% of identified serial killers between 1990 and 2016 were the white male in their mid to late 20s. So it's actually, that is not the standard anymore. Um, and a lot of these are coming from a study that somebody did. Um, I forget her Radford name. Radford University. Yeah, the Radford University Serial Killer Lab. Um, there are also some people who did a lot of research just by going through Murderpedia and kind of just like profiling different things, which is amazing. Um, but like this group, they identify that the highest broad motives for serial killing were enjoyment, financial gain, and anger. Um, we also tend to think of serial killers as either highly intelligent or like not at all intelligent. The average IQ is actually 94.5, which is within the average pretty range. Average. So most of them are pretty um, average intelligence. And the most common serial killer murder methods are strangling, bludgeoning strangling and shooting and poisoning so strangling seems to be a popular choice for serial killers usually they do multiple things um but poisoning especially in the early 1900s is also a popular method yes okay so now um we're gonna talk about what qualifies a murderer as a serial killer because a lot of people wonder that So, there are a couple schools of thought. So, according to the FBI, a serial killer is someone who commits at least three murders over more than a month with an emotional cooling off period in between. Um, This definition is problematic, though, because a gang could be considered serial killers. And a lot of people don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to the National Institute of Justice, a serial killer is very commonly... Um, has a deviant sexual motive. According to them, it involves committing two or more murders with a psychological motive and sadistic sexual overtones. So this is actually problematic because it doesn't cover female serial killers or people who are motivated due to psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the FBI states that the motives of serial killers can include danger, thrill-seeking, financial gain, and attention-seeking. The murders may be attempted or completed in a similar fashion, and the victims may have something in common. For example, a demographic profile, appearance, gender, or race. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that, like, 
there's a lot of stereotypes about what we think of serial killers, and they're not always true. So even, right. like, they, the victims sometimes have something in common. Like, you'll really hear that serial killers stay within their own race, which isn't always true. Right. Some serial killers are pretty indiscriminate yep. in who they murder. Um, so you guys may have heard of this, the organized versus disorganized serial killers. So the organized serial killers, they're the ones who plan it. They personalize the victim. They control the conversation. The crime scene always reflects control. Restraints are used. Bodies are hidden. There's a lot of aggression. Um, Usually evidence is pretty absent. They'll move the victim or the body. Um, Organized serial killers tend to have above average IQ. They're socially competent. They usually do skill work. They're sexually competent, meaning that they do have sexual relationships with other people um, that they're not murdering. They have uh, high birth order. That's interesting. Inconsistent childhood discipline. They drink with a crime. They might be living with a partner. Um, They're mobile. They may leave town and they follow crime in the news media. So that's kind of a lot. Mm-hmm. But, like, think about Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy is one of the most commonly brought up as an organized serial killer because he used, like, he planned it out. He had, you know, the cast on his leg. He had the thing mm-hmm. on, the splint on his arm to kind of get people. He'd ask for help. He was and then mobile, he, had a car. He mobile, he had a car. He moved around. He killed in multiple different places. Um, obviously, he was pretty intelligent mm-hmm. based on his legal defense and the fact that he figured out how to legally get married during his own trial that takes some intelligence to be able to sort through that impressive um so you know he kind of was really manipulative too people described him as charming and that's kind of what you see with organized like he definitely planned it out he was pretty hard to catch and a lot of times like he didn't leave behind a whole lot of evidence because he had prepared for his crimes in advance um, it's kind of the opposite of the disorganized serial killers. So with them, it's spontaneous. The victim and location are unknown. They depersonalize the victim. They don't really talk. The crime scene is random and sloppy. It's suddenly violent. Um, there might be sexual acts after death, which I think organized serial killers sometimes do have mm-hmm. as well. Um, necrophilia is often included for whatever reason. They <laughs> don't understand don't understand it but i also don't understand murdering someone either so there's a lot happening here um the bodies might be left in view they're not hidden weapons are left at the scene um disorganized serial killers tend to have a below average iq they're not as charming not as social they're socially incompetent they might be sexually incompetent too so they're not able to have sexual relationships with other people um, usually you'll see harsh childhood discipline. They don't typically use alcohol. They're kind of nervous during the crime. They tend to like... And after. And after. They tend to live alone and kind of live near the crime scene um, and have behavioral changes. So like an example of this would be Richard Ramirez is a disorganized killer. So that's kind of just some of the more popular ones um, that you can see for those different types. Yeah. All right, so the next part that we're going to talk about is what makes a serial killer psychologically. Um, So, of course, there are biological, social, environmental factors. Um, Neglect and abuse in childhood have been a strong link contributing to the increased risk of future violence, substance abuse, and um, 
can and does lead to increased aggression and violence. So that's something to keep in mind, too. There are documented cases of people who suffered severe head injuries and ultimately became violent, even when there was no prior history of violence. And we have definitely heard this story over and over again. The wooden swings... Yes. In particular, like keep your kids away from wooden swings because All times. they're apparently a huge problem. I mean, yes, it is frightening. Um, the next thing is the majority of serial killers who are sexually motivated um, eroticized violence during development. So for them, violence and sexual gratification are inexplicably intertwined in their psyche. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, Dr. Hare and his associates developed the psychopathy checklist revised. Um, so this is an assessment. And uh, it provides a clinical assessment of the degree of psychopathy an individual possesses. These instruments measure the distinct cluster of personality traits and socially deviant behaviors of an individual who fall into four factors, interpersonal, affective, lifestyle, and antisocial. The interpersonal traits include glibness, superficial charm, and a, a grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, and the manipulation of others. The affective traits include lack of remorse and or guilt, shallow affect, a lack of empathy, and failure to accept responsibility. The lifestyle behaviors include stimulation-seeking behavior, impulsivity, irresponsibility, and lack of realistic life goals. The antisocial behaviors include poor behavioral controls, early childhood behavior problems, juvenile delinquency, revocation of conditional release, and criminal versatility. Um, but it is also really important that you understand that not all offenders qualify as psychopaths or have antisocial personality disorder. And, and that's very true. I think the word psychopath gets thrown mm -hmm. around a lot, like psychopath and sociopath. Yes. And I'd also like to point out that, like, they're not really a diagnosis. Right. So, like, you're not going to go to a therapist and they're going to, like, put in your health record that you are a psychopath. Yeah. Like, it's a series of traits so it's more of like, I'm trying to think of a good example. It's honestly, obviously very different. It's more like saying somebody is an introvert yes. or versus an extrovert than yes. like an actual diagnosis. So like the diagnosis would actually be antisocial personality disorder. Correct. And then kind of psychopath and sociopath are kind of just like things that can be in there. Sprinkled on like sprinkled on top they're kind of like subsets of antisocial personality disorder but antisocial pe personality disorder like is the formal diagnosis um good explanation thank you Baker. all right so i'm going to continue talking about what makes a serial killer so serial killers can be motivated psychologically by various things um anger is a motivation in which an offender displays rage or hostility towards a certain subgroup of the population or with society as a whole um criminal enterprise is a motivation in which the offender benefits in status or money um, by committing the murder that is drug gang or organized crime related financial gain is a motivation in which the offender 
benefits monetarily from killing. Examples of these crimes are black widow killings, robbery, homicides, or multiple killings involving insurance or welfare fraud. Uh, ideology is a motivation to commit murders in order to further the goals and ideas of a specific individual or group. Examples of these include terrorists, um, individuals who attack a specific racial, gender, or ethnic group. Um, another type is power thrill, and it's a motivation in which the offender feels empowered or excited when he kills his victims. Psychosis is a situation in which the offender is suffering from a severe mental illness and is killing because of that mental illness. This may include auditory or visual, visual hallucinations and paranoid, grandiose, or bizarre delusions. Um, and something I want to highlight here is when we talk about severe mental illness, what we're talking about is stuff like schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, we're and not also- talking about like generalized anxiety. <laughs> Yeah, and also, like, most people with schizophrenia are absolutely not going to murder someone. Yep. It's pretty I used to work with rare. a lot. Yeah, I mean, a lot. And also, like, I think we tend to think of schizophrenia as, like, automatically having command hallucinations. Most people don't have command hallucinations. Right. A it's, lot of that got really um, amplified by, like, the media and mm-hmm. how it's, like, portrayed in movies. And it's actually not very accurate. Yeah, I mean, the most common type of hallucination is actually olfactory, which is smell. That's the most common is you smell things that aren't there. Right. Um, And of course, like, you know, there's also people who have schizophrenia who have, like, like, they'll have auditory hallucinations, but it's not somebody being like, go murder your neighbor for the devil. (laughs) Right. Like, right, that's pretty rare. It might be like just hearing people saying your name or talking about inane things. Like, it's not necessarily always like that but that tends to be like in movie characters with it it's pretty much always right command hallucinations which is not not just like i smell popcorn all the time and i'm kind of like seeing weird colors like which is a bit more common absolutely well and also you know for a while i worked in a group home with uh you know many schizophrenic people and you know for them it's it's so sad because they're more likely to harm themselves than other people just because their existence is so complicated mm-hmm. so yeah it's actually a really sad disorder but maybe we'll talk about that at a different time yeah maybe we can do an episode on that do you guys want an episode on that yeah. let us know give in us the suggestions comments. um oh also sexually based is a motivation driven by the sexual needs desires of the offender there may or may not be overt sexual contact reflected in the crime scene so that can get a little dicey as well all right okay so now we're gonna go back to psychopathy and sociopathy because they are different um and again it's a person with antisocial personality disorder, so there's it's a cluster B personality disorder for the DSM fans out DSM. there. DSM. Um, so there's there's kind of again these are like sub descriptions of antisocial personality disorder. So this isn't wouldn't be somebody's formal diagnosis. It's kind of like different subtypes ish. Um, So sociopathy can only be diagnosed at the age of 18, and the 
following symptoms must be present before the age of 15. So, like, if you you have to kind of exhibit these pretty young if you were going to get a diagnosis. Um, so there'd be repeated violations of the law, kind of past, like, curfew stuff. That's technically a law, but that's not what we're talking about right. here. Um, like, robbing stores, doing arson, other things like that would be, like, repeated violations of the law. Right. Lying and deception. It is kind of typical for kids to lie. It's like a developmental thing. Absolutely. But it's more like continued lying about big things and deceiving. Not just like, no, mother, I did not eat the chocolate. Like, bigger (laughs) things than that. Sociopath. (laughs) In that case, all toddlers would be... Like, when they come up to you and they're like, I didn't eat it, and their faces are covered in chocolate. And You aren't good at this. Really, child? I think you're lying right now. Um, but it's kind of ongoing. Like, they never really, like, leave that lying phase and they lie about big things. Um, aggressiveness. So they tend to fight people and do things like that. A reckless disregard for the safety of self or others. So that's an interesting one because it can be so many things. Like, obviously... <laughs> I'm sorry, Gotham is looking the floor. Anyway, sorry. Back to reckless disregard for the safety of self or <laughs> others. Um, so obviously things like murder and rape and assault, that's a reckless disregard for the safety of another person. I would say so, yes. Like, obviously, you don't care about safety at that point, but it's also things like um, driving a car really fast and not wearing a seatbelt would be reckless disregard for your own safety. Engaging in risky behaviors would be under there. Um, an irresponsibility in work and family... Oh, family environment. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> Sorry, the microphone cord hit the thing and it started like ah. going really quick. So obviously like not really caring about work, not showing up on time, not helping at home, just being really irresponsible. You guys know what irresponsibility is. Um, and a lack of remorse. So they don't feel bad about any of this. And that's kind of the key of what you'll see under antisocial personality disorder is it's really like there's kind of a lack of empathy and a lack of remorse for your own actions that tends to come in with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then psychopathy is kind of just more severe sociopathy with more symptoms. Therefore, all psychopaths are sociopaths, but sociopaths are not necessarily psychopaths. Plot twist. (laughs) And what I think is interesting is a lot of times when you hear people use colloquially sociopath, they'll use it as, like, worse than psychopath. Right. Kind of, like, you'll hear it. And I think the thing is, this is confusing for a lot of people, and people tend to throw these around. But you can absolutely be a serial killer without meeting any of these criteria. Completely. It's not always there. Yeah. Um, But there's a society for the study of psychopathy, and they list some psychopath traits, and since they're the people studying it, I'm just going to believe them on this (laughs) one. Shout out. I feel like they know (laughs) what they're talking about. Um, Again, the lack of guilt and remorse and that lack of empathy that I was talking about. So they don't, like, understand that other people have feelings or they just don't care. Um, I know I was watching, I saw something in a psychology class hmm. in at, at NIU, Go oh. Huskies, and um, they were talking, they were interviewing people with psychopaths, and they asked this guy what he would do if he was waiting for a, um, you know, to cross the street and an old lady got run over by a car and was bleeding to death in front of him. And most people 
would like call 911, try to help this woman, comfort her. Um, And the guy said that he would step on her to get over her and be pissed that she got in his way. So that's kind of like the lack of empathy where it's like (laughs) other people exist to assist you and nothing else. Like it's just not quite seeing other people as human in a way. Yeah. Um, Just it's like that sense of empathy. Like most of us care about other people acknowledge that we hurt other people and do our best to not do that and don't like seeing people hurt right like like you feel bad when something happens to somebody else and that's not there um with psychopathy so lack of deep deep emotional attachments a lot of psychopaths will get married will kind of have families but like really they don't connect with other people right it's just to kind of reach a goal yeah it's more of like that's what you do not that like they can um and again not all psychopaths are like really bad people i feel like this is extreme examples most psychopaths do not murder right anyone um a lot of them are in the corporate world yeah if you've ever read the psychopath test um just plug in that book there i think it's john ronson i'm pretty sure I guess I'll have to double check and just reclip and record that if I'm wrong on the name. Um, but he talks about a lot of the research on psychopathy. He's just a journalist discussing this. And yeah, a lot of psychopaths end up being very successful in the business world um, because they're able to make those decisions on without layoffs emotion. and things without <laughs> feeling as bad, which is actually very advantageous for the corporate structure in America. Right. So there are some situations that they're pretty well adapted for. So they're not always bad. They don't always hurt other people. It's just kind of a lack of understanding other people. Right. Um, there's also narcissism, which I don't think I need to go. <clears throat> I think we all know what a narcissist is really. Um, you know, they're just, they're the most important. Like I was talking yeah. about, like other people are there to serve them, which you can see if you kind of are unable to have empathy for other people and understand other people have feelings, then narcissism makes perfect sense in that Absolutely. situation. Um, superficial charm, dishonesty, manipulativeness, and reckless risk-taking. So I guess like it's kind of saying the key is like the lack of empathy between sociopathy. So sociopaths, can have some empathy for other people they just may not care as much right versus a psychopath genuinely just doesn't really have the capacity to have that i really think and correct me if i'm wrong that maybe with sociopaths like they do care but just about like a certain like group of people like maybe their own family yeah yeah um and i am absolutely by no means an expert on this i find it fascinating but this is not like really my field so if i got any of that wrong i'm sorry i apologize i'll just throw it out there because i think you know we're doing our best to get the research down but these two things they can be confusing because they're just again different subtypes of something um and there's different for any mental illness there kind of are different subtypes for everything and they can be a bit confusing at times true um so now for some kind of factors as children so we've all kind of heard of some of these so um you know antisocial behavior in children is a bit of a bit of a red flag not all um again not all kids who exhibit these behaviors are gonna be serial killers so if you're like really worried about your kids i mean if you're really worried about them take them to therapy but they're probably not gonna be serial killers um so antisocial behavior like we may think of that colloquially antisocial is just like 
oh, like, I didn't want to go to the book club. I'm antisocial. Like, you'll hear that. Like, people will throw it around. Not correct. Not. Well, I mean, that's correct for colloquial. But, like, for clinical antisocial behavior is literally, like, antisocial. Like, it's a behavior against other people. So not really caring about other people, disregarding other people's feelings, those sorts of things. So it's not, like, a failure to engage in a social situation. It's actively, like, rebelling against social situations. Right. If that makes sense. Am I correct on this? Yeah, you're a thousand percent correct. Perfect. Um, Arson. So many serial killers start out as arsonists. Um, Fun fact... It's psychologically attractive because it involves power and control. So that's a big thing for serial killers. Also for rapists is that power and control aspect. Um, Again, a lot of kids light fires. I found for some reason. I remember I used to play with candles. Like I would stick my fingers in the wax and let it get hard. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think I did that too. Or like a lot of kids have like lit a paper towel on fire before freaked out or something like that yeah. they generally do it once and then like freak out um but this is more like purposely lighting things on fire to like watch them burn so bigger fires would be like arson like garbage cans parts of the house right. like more things not and, it, and their reaction is very important too like if they're the light something be like oh my god like i need water like okay that's normal but if someone were to just light something and just slowly watch it burn with no reaction like, yeah that would be very concerning or if they're watching something burn and they're getting sexually aroused while watching it burn yes. that would also be uh very concerning but most kids will light something on fire and be like fuck, I have really underestimated how dangerous this is. I need an adult immediately. Escalated quickly. They will usually seek help when they realize they've made a mistake. Kids who are, like, really into arson will not do that because that's, like, what they want to do. Right. Um, Torturing small animals. So, again, like, you'll see a lot. And, like, not, like, hunting wouldn't fall under this. So culturally, like, killing animals can be appropriate if you're, like, a hunting family. But they'll do things like, you know, slit the neighbor's dog's throat or, like, skin animals alive. Like, torturing animals, not just, like, killing them. Like There's pulling a, off, like, appendages and yeah. like, a difference between, like, shooting and it's dead and actually torturing. Yeah, like, actually torturing, dissecting other things like that. Yeah. Um, they have to have a dysfunctional family life and a history of child abuse that is really, really common. Um, again, a lot of children are abused. Vast majority of them do not become serial killers, but it is unfortunately pretty common. Um, and voyeurism, which is liking to watch. People. <laughs> well, like that was a bad I like was going for the joke like you guys know it's like liking to watch other people having sex um or like being a peeping tom watching in the window um and the other person doesn't know the, is like the key yeah it's like the key it's the power of control it's getting sexually aroused by watching somebody else and them not knowing so it's like watching pornography would not be voyeurism but like installing a bathroom camera would be or things like that like it's specifically the thrill of the other person not knowing that they're being sexualized right um 
again, the peeping Tom thing, I think some kids do kind of go through a peeping phase that is kind of a normal part of sexual development. Where they kind of bust in on the bathroom. Like, like busting in on the bathroom or just like trying to see people naked because they're trying to figure it out. But again, if it's like a, usually with kids, if it's redirectable, it's probably fine. Like if you're like, don't do that, that, and you explain why they shouldn't do it and they stop you're probably fine and with um, kids like being naked to them is like funny we're like yeah. oh you're supposed to be wearing clothes what's going on here yeah like for kids especially depending on the age it's like that like three to five six year old humor where they're starting to learn about jokes i know one of my nieces thinks she's hilarious and she is and she'll like <laughs> she is. she'll like go upside down and be like i'm right side up and then stand and be like i'm upside down because to kids that age like saying something that's not true is peak humor because they're like you can see i'm upside down but i'm saying i'm right side up this is hilarious or so stories like stories that you can tell like are not true like we had um one of nick's friends over last night and he has a daughter who's six and she was like yeah, she's like, at my school, I saw a farmer feeding a pig ice cream. I was like, I feel like this isn't a true story. And she started, yeah. like, laughing hysterically. And it's stuff like that. So, like, to younger kids, being naked is hilarious because they're like, you're supposed to wear clothes and you're not wearing clothes. Peak comedy right here. Um, so, again, they might try to see, like, they might, there's some curiosity, but, like, with older kids repeated peeping you know like and more escalating more like not trying to bust into the bathroom but actually like sitting in a tree with binoculars that's a lot more serious of a behavior yeah like towards like a neighbor or somebody specifically people they don't know so like there's also something called the mcdonald triad which was created in 63 um which some research has come out now saying that maybe they're aren't the statistics to support this but this is what you'll hear that arson bedwetting and torturing animals are like the three three key indicators that your child is going to become a serial killer um because and it's bedwetting past an age where bedwetting is normal lots of kids have accidents like up until they're seven or eight it's not that uncommon occasionally if there's like a big storm or something for an older child to have an accident by like some sort of disorder or you know right they could also you know there are medical conditions that can cause bedwetting so there's a lot of and things but it can be an indication yeah apparently a lot of serial killers were bedwetters Interesting fact. Fun fact, everyone. Okay. All right. So in this part of our little talk here, um, we each are individually going to talk about a pretty famous serial killer and kind of break down um, their history from a psychological perspective. So um, without further ado, I am going to talk about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like that needed, like, maybe we need some sound effects or, like, a spooky ghost sound effect like or something. A creepy wind chime. Ooh, we should get a creepy wind chime. Does anybody have a really creepy wind chime? Do you want to, like, audio record your creepy wind chime and send, send it, it to us? us? Please. Thank you. Thank you much. Anywho, uh, so Richard Ramirez, he was born in Texas in 1960 at age two. A dresser fell on Richard's head, causing a large forehead laceration. So here we go, from the top, with the head injuries. 
At five, he was knocked unconscious from a swing and started experiencing epileptic seizures. Like I said earlier, wooden swings. Do not let your kids near them. So again, this is his second um, head injury. Not good. Not good. Especially head injuries that cause a lack of consciousness. That's really the key. If they're bad, most kids hit their heads. But if it's bad enough, they lose consciousness. A little more concerning. Well, especially this kid. I mean, with the epileptic seizures. Like, damn. That's serious. All right. uh, Next part is um, as... An adolescent, Ramirez was heavily influenced by his older cousin. Um, in the research, they call him Miguel, but they also call him Mike, so whichever. Um, so he had recently returned from fighting in the Vietnam War. Um, the two used to smoke marijuana together, and Miguel would tell Richard about torture and mutilation he had inflicted on several Vietnamese women with photo evidence. And they also bonded over Satanism. Such so. a good thing to bond over, telling your younger sibling about torture. There's a lot of family bonding there. He yeah. Is. So uh, he had an older sister named Ruth, and her husband, Roberto, um, was a peeping Tom. And he basically showed Richard how to do that without getting caught. Um, because of this rebellion, um, Ramirez became alienated from his parents. He brought a lot of shame to them. At age 13, Richard witnessed his cousin Miguel murder his wife. So that happened right in front of him. You know, just consider all the trauma related to that. Mm-hmm. In 1977, Ramirez was sent to juvenile detention for a series of petty crimes. In addition, he was put on probation for marijuana possession in 1982. Soon after these two crimes, Ramirez moved to California and continued to commit crimes such as burglary, possession of cocaine, as well as a car theft charge, which resulted in a jail sentence. So he's serving time at this point. So let's get into the murder. So... He killed at least 14 people and raped and tortured at least two dozen more, mostly during the spring and summer of 1985. So in April of 1984, Richard Ramirez's first murder was um, a nine-year-old named Mei Ling Lung in a hotel basement uh, where he was living at the time. He raped and beat the girl, stabbing her to death. Her body was hung from a pipe. In June of 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found brutally murdered in her apartment. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated, which, like, holy shit. That is alarming. Yes. Uh, Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen here moved to gain access through an open window. In March of 1985, Ramirez entered a home at approximately 2 a.m. and killed sleeping Vincent Zazara, who was age 64, with a gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun. His wife, Maxine, was awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her, bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded, unfortunately. Ramirez shot her three times with a twenty-two, then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. 
Um, he mutilated her body by stabbing, stabbing her several times, then gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, which is haunting. Yeah. Um, and he left with them. Uh, Ramirez left footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds. And I don't know if you've ever seen these sneakers, but they are hideous. And this is, you know, like we talked about, I mentioned him as a disorganized killer. You're seeing, like, he left footprints. He left shoe prints. He wasn't he did, thinking. Yeah, he did a couple things that made him easier to catch. Like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we're spilling the tea <laughs> over here. Guys, we do not like Richard Ramirez. <laughs> we're not a fan. <laughs> Go off. Okay. So, basically, his stuff has escalated from vulnerable populations at the beginning of his career. So, like, you know, the example of a child and the elderly people. Um, and what's so interesting about him is that he had victims of varying different ages, races, sexes. Um, he used multiple weapons. He's used handguns, a machete, tire iron, hammer. And because his M.O. was all over the place, it was really hard for people to connect the crimes, which makes sense. Um, they finally caught him via fingerprint and shoe print. Um, my favorite part of the Richard Ramirez story is how he was captured. Yes. So basically, here's the tea. Um <laughs> Here's what I know. Um, So basically, I guess he was in like some sort of gas station or something. And the people there saw in the newspaper that he was being looked for. And they figured out that he was connected to the crimes. And essentially, uh, somebody recognized him, pointed him out. And people in L.A. just like chased after him like this huge mob of people went after him he tried to um steal a car and i think somebody just like beat him up like in the street like it was crazy and it's so interesting too because you know when you think of a lot of different situations where there's a large group of people usually it's hard to like get help when there's Mm -hmm. more people there's that kind of phenomena associated with it but the fact that everybody was like nope like let's get this dude it's actually like kind of crazy um and technically the police officer who found him like running away from the mob saved him so Mm. Interessante. It really, really is. It's so nice when people bond together to chase away a serial killer. <laughs> Get out of here. Try to kill him. <laughs> so, after getting charged with 13 death sentences, mm. he spent the remainder of his days at California's San Quentin Prison um, before dying from cancer in June of 2013. Not that long ago. Um, what's weird and an interesting fact is when he died, he was the color of highlighter green. I would really, I try, I want to find a picture of that because somebody has to have it. Like, right? That's such like a, because I've heard that fact a couple times. So you think that like people would have like posted that. Right. But it's kind of hard to find. <laughs> Someone Snapchat it to me. <laughs> if you. anybody has pictures of Richard Ramirez green. <laughs> That are not photoshopped. Please send them to us. Or you can photoshop them and still send them I to mean, us. that would also be hilarious. We would enjoy it. Alright, so let's break it down. So, some psychological key factors. So, first of all, I strongly hypothesize that he did have conduct disorder. 
as a child. So he met criteria for at least three of the factors um, from bullying, threatening or intimidating others, often initiates physical fights, has used a weapon that can seriously cause physical harm to others, can or has been physically cruel to people, has been physically cruel to animals. We don't know about the animals. Um, has stolen while confronting victim. Yes. Has forced someone into sexual activity. I don't think that happened as a child, but he did do the peeping Tom stuff. Um, deliberately engaged in fire setting with intention to cause serious damage. Not that I know of. Destroyed others' property other than fire setting. I don't know. Broke into someone else's house, building, or cart. Yes. Often lies to obtain goods. Yes. Favors or to avoid obligations. Stolen items of non-trivial value without confronting the victim. Staying out at night despite parental prohibitions. I had read something in the research where they found him sleeping in a graveyard. Like he had run away from home and just, just napping in a graveyard. It's like, this looks like a great place to sleep. It's very peaceful. Uh, runs away from home overnight at least twice while living with a guardian or once without returning for a lengthy period of time and is often missing from school. So according to the DSM-5, features of antisocial personality disorder include violation of the physical or emotional rights of others. So this is, we're looking at adult factors here. Um, so yes, as an adult, he definitely violated the physical and emotional rights yes. of others multiple times. Very clearly. Um, lack of stability in job and home life. I would say so. Yeah. I would definitely yeah. say so. Irritability and aggression. Yep. Lack of remorse. I think if you kill one person and continue to, you probably aren't very remorseful. Um, consistent irresponsibility, recklessness, impulsivity, deceitfulness, a childhood diagnosis with conduct disorder. And yes, I do believe he had that. Again, theory, never met him, but based on the research. Um, so just to kind of continue with the psych factors that played into this, uh, head injuries, two during childhood. Um, I also found in the research, um, he was trying to rape a woman at a hotel he was working at at one point, and the mm. husband came in and like basically like beat the shit out of him so that he sustained another head injury. Um, I also was doing research and found that epileptic seizures can be stimulated to the amygdala, so that's a part of the brain, thereby contributing to the causation of violence. Another biological... Ugh, biological aspect of violence is hormone related so either a lack of hormones or extra hormones or even just improper secretion of some hormones can drastically affect a person's behavior not to mention his brain on drugs and we know that he was doing a lot of drugs um the other factor is you know he did have a large family in poverty and that definitely causes stress um an actual quote from richard ramirez was the recipe was poverty, drugs, and child abuse, things that contributed to a person's frustration and anger. At one point, he explodes. Um, and then early exposure to trauma is something that I teach people about a lot when it comes to trauma and how that kind of translates to other relationships. Is um, There's something called the Cartman Triangle. So basically, it's this triangle, and at each point, there's these things that people fall into if they've experienced trauma um so one is 
victimizing, the mm-hmm. second is enabling, and the third is being predatory. Um, so you can kind of see that, you know, as a child, he was probably victimized, you know, from like the abuse and, you know, things that like he witnessed and things like his cousin was telling him. Um, I think definitely he probably enabled some stuff um, when it comes to his cousin, especially like if he was like there, like when his cousin like murdered his wife or whatever. And then how that turned into predatory behavior where he started acting out, you know, some of this stuff too. Um, Another thing that we had talked about before that definitely plays into this is the connection between learning about sex and violence at the same time. Um, There is a theory um, neurologically that what fires together wires together. Um, So if you're experiencing sex and violence at the same time, people have a tendency to gravitate towards that in the future. Mm -hmm. So that is Richard Ramirez. Wonderful job. Thank Thank you. you, Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yes. So I'm going to talk about a serial killer who is maybe not as well known, perhaps, but is utterly horrifying. So his name is... Talk about Andre Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov. Um, So he was born in 1936 in Ukraine, which if you know anything about history... Not a great time to be in Eastern Europe. Um, There was a lot going on with the USSR. Um, Basically, a lot had changed. And because of um, Stalin's agricultural revolution, um, they did not have a lot of food. And his family, who had no experience farming, were suddenly farmers. So they kind of had, they lived in a one-room hut. Um, the family farms, they weren't paid. They were only allowed to grow food and some of the food they could keep. And that was it. So they had to live there. They had a farm, but they couldn't like, they didn't get paid for it. So, um, yeah, he kind of had a lot going on in his childhood, a lot of trauma. So I'll talk about his trauma first. So number one, there was famine. They often had to eat grass and leaves to survive. So he really had a lot of food insecurity growing up, which can always um, impact development quite a bit, where he like legitimately had to eat grass to live. Um, as a child, his mother repeatedly told him that his older brother, Stefan, was kidnapped, murdered, and cannibalized by their neighbors. Um, due to famine so she would tell him that and I looked into it and nobody really knows if his brother was actually murdered and cannibalized like there are reports of that happening in the time because people were starving to death what a strange very specific rumor (laughs) right (laughs) or bedtime story like it's very clear that his mom did tell him this it's not as clear what actually happened to his brother yeah and so I mean, if you can think about it, if you're a little kid and you're starving to death and everybody else is starving and your mom is telling you that the next door neighbors murdered your older brother and ate him, that's just a lot going on. Um, There are some (laughs) things that I read that said he actually insisted on being called Stefan. I can't verify that anywhere, like that he wanted to be called by his dead brother's name. Weird. Um, But really, it's just kind of like an interesting rumor that happened. Yeah. Um, so like I said, he lived in a one-room hut with both of his parents. His dad was in the military, um, and he was captured and kept as a POW, but everyone blamed him for allowing himself to be captured, so the family was really looked down upon um, that, you know, his family didn't 
support communism appropriately because his mm. dad was captured. Um, also, some fun facts is that he lived in a one-room hut. He shared a bed with his mother. Um, which, That's dicey. Yeah, it's a little concerning. I mean, I guess it, it that used to be a lot more common than it is now. I think so culturally sometimes... And I mean, if you live in a one-room hut, there, like, aren't options. <laughs> yes. Like... Unless you get bunk beds. I mean, I guess you could have bunk beds. But while his uh, father was deployed or captured in the military, his mother gave birth to a baby girl, his little sister. And at the time, it was really common for German soldiers to rape women. There's a lot of reports that happening. Mm. So it's suspected that Andre saw his mother get raped and then have this baby. Um, So again, like, that was supposedly, like, his introduction to sex was seeing his mother be raped by a soldier. Um, Again, that is Allegedly, um, we cannot say for certain that that happened. They also strongly believe that he was born with hydrocephaly, which is water on the brain, which led to some physical problems that he had, um, which included bedwetting and erectile dysfunction. And his erectile dysfunction is actually very key to the rest of this story. Mm. Um, As is his bedwetting, he shared a bed with his mom, who berated him for having bedwetting incidents. Um, And again, it was probably because of brain damage. Like, it wasn't as much of things that controlled, but he was born with that brain damage from having water on his brain. Yeah. Um, He also watched his family's hut being burned down by German soldiers. A lot of trauma there. So he had a lot of trauma very early in his childhood. Um, And then something happened that kind of changed him. And he was... His sister had some friends over, his little sister, and they were messing around, and Andre tackled his sister's friend, and he spontaneously ejaculated while, like, attacking this girl. It specifically said that he held her down, and she was struggling, and that's when he climaxed. So that is really starting off his connection between violence and gratification. So if you're looking, like... He, you know, had seen his mother be raped. That was his introduction to sex. And then he spontaneously ejaculates while pinning down a girl. So his brain is really connecting sex and violence. That makes sense. From an early age. And especially since, um, again, he had some erectile dysfunction that he dealt with, it sounds like, pretty much from the get-go. Yeah. Um, which they suspect is just a result of brain damage. Hydrocephaly can have a lot of different effects on people because when there's water in your brain, it can mess up your brain. There's swelling, there's other things. And so they think that that was the way it impacted him. So, there's a lot that happens here. Um, (laughs) He did get married, actually. Um, So it was really interesting. I'm trying to find where that was. Apparently, he, he started dating some girls... And he couldn't get an erection. Um, mm. And they told everybody at the school about Aww. it. So he got made fun of a lot for his erectile dysfunction, too, which, again, is bringing a lot of shame to the situation. Right. It's a lot of problems. So he got married. Um, his sister set him up with a girl that she knew and kind of facilitated the marriage because she thought that he should be married. 
Um, so he did get married. He did have two children. Um, his wife and he kind of he was really open about the erectile dysfunction piece, um, and basically said that even throughout his marriage, he was never able to perform sexually. It was never a thing. Um, he ended up having to inseminate his wife, which they agreed on in order to have children. I wonder um, what it was like back then. Yeah, for him to inseminate his wife. I mean, I have the details. What are they? Specifically. So apparently the method of insemination, skip over this if you don't want to hear it, is he (laughs) would just um, masturbate and ejaculate. Because he could ejaculate, he just couldn't maintain an erection. So he would ejaculate into his hand and then just like push it into his wife. Wow. So they agreed on this. They did it at home. There weren't doctors, but they were kind of like, it's suspicious if we don't have kids. So let's do this. So it was pretty much he was never able to perform sexually during his life. Interessante. Except for some other times. So we'll <laughs> get there. Um, so he was a good communist by all accounts. He really believed in it. Um, and he became a teacher, which is concerning if you heard anything about his childhood. Probably shouldn't be around kids. Nope. And he should not have been around kids. He first molested a student in 73, and he got away with it. And so um, much like a lot of the reports of the Catholic Church in America, when he got caught molesting students, he would just get moved to different schools. He moved around. So a lot of people are saying that it's because of, um, like, communist beliefs that... It's on everybody. So if he was doing something, it would reflect badly on the school. Mm. So they just moved him. So they wouldn't, like, say he couldn't go. They would just kind of tell him he had to leave, and then he'd find another school to work at. He stopped teaching in 81, but he definitely um, did molest a lot of students. There are also reports of him, like, standing in the doorway with students and just, like, openly touching himself. Oh, my God. Um, so he, he did kind of have that where he was molesting students. And then in 1978, he committed his first murder. It was a nine-year-old girl named Yelena Zaktnova. Um, I'm just going to say now, I don't speak Russian, so <laughs> I am sorry. So throw that out there. I'm sorry, but if I'm pronouncing any names incorrectly, I am trying my best. Um, but a lot of Eastern European names can be tricky for Americans. On my Western tongue. <laughs> Little tricky, people. Um So basically, he had, he bought a hut, um, which is questionable because he was, like, living with his wife and children at the school. Like, they had housing for (laughs) the teachers. But he had had a hut um, that it seems like he specifically created to be a rape hut. Okay. He owned it. um, So he lured this nine-year-old girl away from, I believe, a bus stop in an attempt to rape her. However, he couldn't get an erection. She started to fight back. And he strangled her. Hmm. And then he stabbed her. And when he stabbed her, he had a spontaneous ejaculation. So again, he's connecting it. And it seems like he's really only able to ejaculate when it's associated with violence. Um, How it seems like at that point it was taking more for him to achieve orgasm yeah and so again we don't know too much about his life with his wife or kind of what he could do outside of this but um a lot of people are saying psychologically he was using a knife as a surrogate penis Uh. to penetrate people and that's why he stabbed people um so the interesting thing with yelena is that um an eyewitness saw chikatila with her right before she disappeared 
but his wife provided him with an alibi. She said Ugh. that he was home the same time. So even though, like, they found blood or something at the hut, I think they found a drop of blood right near the hut. Wow. Where he owned, so he was talked to about it, and they had seen him, but his wife gave him an alibi, said he was home the whole time, and that enabled him to just kind of get away from the police attention. Got it. A 25-year-old, Alexander Krivzhenko... Um, was he, he was 25 years old, he was in the area at the time, and he had a previous rape conviction. So mm. he was arrested. He confessed to the crime under duress, um, which they think is the result of an extensive and brutal interrogation. He was tried for it, and he was executed for killing her in 1984. So his first murder victim, somebody else was executed for which is intense. So I think yeah. that kind of helped him with a feeling that he could get away with it. Um, so perhaps because he almost got caught with his first one, there are no documented victims for the next three years. So he still had lots of claims of child abuse. Um, eventually Chikatilo found it impossible to find another teaching post, probably because enough schools had heard that he shouldn't be teaching children. Um, so he couldn't get a teaching job. And he, you know, he get, was basically made redundant from his mining school post. He wasn't able to teach in 81. So he took a job as a clerk for a raw materials factory in Rostov, where there was travel involved with the position. And this is when he started killing a lot more people over the next nine years. He was traveling for work all the time, and that really helped him get away with it for a while. So on... September 3rd of 1981, Larisa Tichenko, she was 17, she was his next victim. She was strangled, stabbed, and gagged with leaves and dirt to prevent her from crying out. Wow. Um, so basically, again, this was a brutal attack, and he was able to ejaculate during the brutal attack, which... Once again, can create <laughs> violence with um, sexual release. So he kind of had a pattern of attack at this point in time where he was focusing on young runaways, but of both sexes. He would go at train stations and bus stops, lure them to forest areas, and he would attack them, attempt rape, and every time he wasn't able to rape them due to his erectile dysfunction, he would end up killing and mutilating them. Mm. Um, in a number of cases, he resorted to cannibalism. He ate their sex organs um, or removed other body parts, such as the tips of their noses and tongues, um, uh. which is really fascinating. So he did mutilate the bodies, too, which there was a lot going on here um, in the earliest cases, his common pattern was to inflict damage to people's eyes. Um, he'd like slash across the sockets, remove the eyeballs. And he attributed it to, I guess it's a common superstition mm. in the time that um, when a person died, the last thing they saw was imprinted in their eyes. Ah. And so he believed that they would be able to catch him because it would be his face. So he mutilated eyes. Um, I guess that's a pretty common, wa or was a pretty common superstition sure. in Eastern Europe at the time. Um, so then the interesting thing is in 1984, Chikatilo was actually arrested for murder, but he was let go. And he was let go because there was, you know, that back then they could do blood typing evidence, but that was really it. Mm -hmm. And so 
he his blood type didn't match the oh. semen found at the scenes. But the interesting thing is that Chikatilo's blood type and the blood type represented in his semen were different blood types. What? So it's completely a fluke that he didn't get caught. And back in 84, they didn't know that that was possible. Um, but in some people, it can be different due to, I'm not really sure what medical conditions yeah. can cause it. But some men, if you blood type their semen and their blood, it's not going to be the same thing. Um, and he was one of those people, so they didn't know it was possible. So he once again got away with murder. This motherfucker. I know, right? <laughs> um, so, in uh, 1990, Chikatilo killed and mutilated a 22-year-old woman named Sveta. I'm not going to attempt her last name. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, Sveta. Um, in a woodlands near a station. So, at this point in time, you know, the police were on. This was one of the biggest investigations kind of in history at that point in time in that part of the world where they knew that a serial killer was going after people, right? They knew that he was taking people at bus stops and train stations. Mm -hmm. So they had police at, like, all of the train stations nice. waiting for something. So after killing Sveta in the woods... He was caught leaving the crime scene. He was seen by an undercover officer. The policeman observed Chikatila approach a well and wash his hands and his face. Um, when he approached the station, the officer noticed his coat had grass and soil stains at the elbows. He had a red smear on his cheek, and he looked suspicious. Yeah. Um, apparently, a popular pastime in that part of the world was uh, gathering wild mushrooms. <laughs> um, but... He was not, like, that was, so that was what a lot of people did in the area, but he wasn't dressed like a hiker. He was dressed formally, um, and he had a nylon sports bag, which is not the proper bag to store wild mushrooms in. So they Failure. actually, like, that really, I think that's such an interesting detail, is that was, like, kind of what made the police suspicious, is the fact yeah. that, like, he had the wrong type of bag and clothing for mushroom hunting. So they're like, he's clearly not looking for mushrooms. <laughs> He must be our killer. Um, so they stopped and they checked his papers. They didn't have any reason to arrest him at that time, so he wasn't held. They just kind of checked his papers to see who he was. The policeman came back to the office, filed a formal routine report indicating the name of the person he stopped at the train station. And then they basically realized that he had been arrested multiple times for oh, the murders shit. at this point in time, and he was ultimately arrested again. So the interesting thing um, is that Chikatilo claimed that he murdered 56 people. He is the 11th most prolific serial killer in the world, per oh Wikipedia. They have a ranking. Um, so he's pretty high up there, 56 murders. He was tried on 53 of the murders and he was convicted on 52 so the three of them he wasn't tried for i think was um they couldn't find the bodies he said that he killed the 52 and believe it or not he was sentenced to death yeah. um so during the trial you hear this a lot with him he was kept in an iron cage he exposed himself he sang and he refused to answer questions so one of the interesting things is that I hear that a lot where people are saying that he was so violent he was kept in an iron cage during trial. Apparently, at the time, that was standard and everybody was kept in the iron cage during the trial. 
Um, so it's really interesting. I so if you find pictures, it's not so much a cage. It's basically a jail cell in the corner of the uh. room. Um, like it's not like a full. It's not like it's just like human size and he has to stand there. There's like seats and everything. It's just that they keep them in a cell. Gotcha. Um, but they had to have officers outside the cell because family members of the victims kept charging the cell and trying to kill him during oh, the trial. Damn. Okay. Um, so there's really interesting things that um happened where he kind of yelled so he is declared sane and fit to go trial they tried for an insanity plea and i really think at times he was going for the insanity plea mm. um he would kind of yell strange things i think at one point like he would he like took off his clothes and was like holding them like flags um so he he did a lot of interesting things during the trial to like really try to seem insane okay um but he was declared sane and so he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder with sadistic tendencies Ah. and the interesting thing um so speaking you know we've talked about like the dsm diagnostics that's what we use in the states um I have been completely unable to find the diagnostic criteria as to why that was the diagnosis that they went with with him. Yeah. Um, Because this was, like, Russia right out of the Soviet Union at this point. This is the early 90s. So a lot of the psychologists, they were trained under the Soviet Union. And from what I've been able to tell, they had um, the University of Moscow... I believe, had its own diagnostic diagnostic criteria that they used that nobody else used. So it was like their own thing. Um, so I have not been able to find that, unfortunately. So most people with borderline personality disorder absolutely do not murder people. Right. Um, so I think, and again, this is an educated guess, One of the trademarks of borderline personality disorder is really just reactions to things that are just past what a typical reaction would be. Just reacting really strongly to things and like inappropriately and angrily responding to things. Mm -hmm. And Chikatilo basically said that he never intended to kill anyone. He only ever wanted to rape people, but when he's he couldn't maintain an erection he murdered them Hmm. so i think that they were going off of like taking that as truth and the fact that he just got so angry that he couldn't rape them that he had an inappropriately angry reaction and murdered them so i think that's diagnostically where they're going at with him um but again i can't find anything to back it up i really tried um In his testimony, he described himself as a poisoned wolf. He said he never planned to kill, but that he would be seized with shaking and shivering and would lose control. Oh. Now, personally, and this is just my personal belief, I have a hard time believing that he didn't intend on killing anyone. um, Because of, like, he actually was, in his own way, somewhat organized. And the fact is, like, he did hide the bodies. He did do a lot of things, and he did plan this out. He went to the stations, he lured people, he obviously made sure he had knives on him and other things. Right. Um, And also, if he genuinely didn't plan on murdering people, I just, I don't know if, like, he was just your average rapist, if he would have cannibalized people. I feel like there's certain things that indicate that maybe he was more serious about murder than he let on. Um, Possible. But again, 
Never met the guy. Uh, he was executed. <laughs> I was three when he was executed, so you know, never really got the chance. Um, but it just seems to me like he he was too prepared for murder. And like, I just don't think you can accidentally murder th- fifty six people. Nah. Like, I just don't buy that. That's a lot of murder. Um, so he was sentenced to death. Quite obviously, um, he was executed in ninety four. And, uh, interesting thing, he was executed in his cell, just point-blank gunshot to the head. I guess that was just, like, how they executed people there at the time, which was, I mean, just interesting to read about. Um, so, like, some of the psychological factors, obviously, he had tons of trauma in his childhood. He was starving, he heard his brother got murdered, like, all of these things were happening, witnessing a rape... Um, I mean, even just living in a one-room house and witnessing your mother giving birth, even if she wasn't raped, still traumatizing, though. Like, I think right, a if little you're not kid... sure what's happening, yeah. Right, or even just, like, birth can be very traumatizing to children. It can be really traumatizing to adults, too. Yeah. Like, it is graphic, and there's a lot going on, so that could be trauma, too. Um, the hut burned down. There was so much trauma. He did have a head injury at birth, and it's really unclear how much that affected him. Right. He seemed to do okay in school. He was teaching, so, like, there was a lot that indicated he was pretty okay, mm-hmm. but it also seems like bedwetting, you know, that it affected his genitals, and we don't know what else it affected. Right. Um, he just molested so many kids. Like, he was an offender. He was a violent offender from pretty early on, it seems. Um, again, like, it would be hard to even suggest a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, because there's not that much known about his childhood. We don't know if he mutilated animals, we don't know about fires, we don't really know about how he treated other kids. And so there's just a lot, which I think is just because of where he was in the world, there weren't as good of records and different, there was, I mean, a lot of things going on at the time, and so it was just kind of hard to really say for sure um, but his mother, from all reports, was overbearing, and that is something that you will see with a lot of serial killers, is emotional abuse from their moms, specifically, mm-hmm. seems to be pretty indicative. So, you know, his mom would berate him for wetting the bed and lots of other things, and of course, like, telling him his brother was murdered, maybe to scare him, it just sounds like maybe there was a lot going on there, but I don't I know for sure. his mother was borderline. That is an interesting theory. Maybe they based his diagnosis off of, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot. um, Yeah, I really, like, it could be so many things. And you also just have to imagine, like, it sounds like his mom wasn't particularly nice, but she's also, like, a mom who, you know, people hate her because her husband was captured in war, and she's been a single mom because her husband was captured in war, and she's living in a hut, and she's starving, too, and, I mean, all of the stuff going on in the Soviet Union, there was so much happening historically that was very traumatizing to the people. Totally. I mean, if your older son is cannibalized by your neighbors you imagine that's going to mess you up quite a bit yeah and so i'm sure she had a lot of trauma too which may have indicated like uh, impacted there's the word i was looking for (laughs) uh you know her child rearing skills and kind of how that all worked out so it's really hard to tell what happened but there was just so much that wasn't good yeah um he had that physiological connection between sex and violence from Mm -hmm. a pretty early age um there is something, so, like, children, there's always an age where a child, we say, it like, becomes sexualized. Now, that doesn't mean that they, like, 
inherently are sexual. It's like that tipping point in your life where you know what sex is. Right. Because, you know, for a lot of people it happens in teenagers. You can think of, like, maybe as a kid if you were, like, Googling boobs or stealing your dad's, like, Playboys or something. That's pretty common when you hit that tipping point where you're curious and you think it's interesting and, like, you want to know what it is. And there's something called traumatic sexualization. So that can happen when kids are abused where they find out about sex in a traumatizing way it's also happening with kids now with um viewing pornography Mm -hmm. when they're not like emotionally ready or old enough to see it like young kids who see violent pornography can get traumatically sexualized so you can imagine that if he did in fact witness his mother being raped that would be traumatic sexualization because suddenly he knows what sex is because he saw it happening violently to someone he cared about and you can think about like that is connecting violence and sex in the brain at a very early age because he probably didn't know anything about sex what sex was before that i mean he lived in a one-room hut so he may have been there when his parents had sex maybe they made him go outside i don't really know how that would work for families then yeah but like most likely, you know, there was that violence when he connected it, and then when he tackled his sister's friend and held her down, and she squirmed, and then he ejaculated, that really connected that. And then there's also being spurned by women due to erectile dysfunction. So he had, I think, a strong, because of that, need to control women um, because of that, where he was connecting that, like, he wasn't successful because of that, and he was getting made fun of because of that. Right. Um... So just kind of another interesting thing to bring up. Um, my br- when we did this one live, my brother texted me the next day and like asked what happened to his kids. Ooh, good Because question. I think that's a really good question because he was married and he did have kids. And you can imagine like being a kid and finding this out about Ooh, your father, gosh, yeah. right? Like that's alarming. So his daughter and his wife it looks like just changed their names and went dark nobody knows where they are um so completely understandable they changed their names so nobody really knows what his daughter's up to his son is actually serving a prison sentence for rape oh right now um he might have gotten out by now but what i was able to research um i don't know if he murdered anyone but it looks like he did get arrested for sexual assault so that also brings in you know did he witness something as a kid is there a genetic factor like kind of you know that's always interesting i think it's really sad too but i did some research on that and i couldn't find too much about like the specifics of what his son did um, but it looks like he is also a predator. Oh, gosh, some intergenerational trauma. Yeah, so it's like, is there a genetic component to traits that make you more likely to assault human beings? We all know say. Maybe. Wow. Well, good job. That's That's intense. Thank you. I like that we're starting it out real heavy here. Real heavy. Real heavy. Well, I feel like we're hitting, like, the questions that most people, like, commonly ask about serial killers. So I'm happy we were able to kind of break it down. Yeah. So. So that's some information. Should we try to, like, end on positive notes? We can. Like, I don't want to rip off Karen in Georgia. With her fucking hooray, because that's uh, their that's their deal. That's their should thing. we have a deal though? We should have a deal. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Do you have like a positive thing that you do to end sessions? Um, no, no. <laughs> 
It's just like, get out. No. Um, some therapists do, some therapists don't. It really depends on your style. I, usually, I, I do grounding with my clients. You do grounding? Because sometimes I do gratefulness. Oh, that's a cute one. At the end, especially for like kids. Okay, why don't we do some gratitude? Let's do some gratitude. How about, how do you want to do your gratitude? Uh, three things I'm grateful for. Three right things we're grateful for. That's a good, that's kind of like the classic gratitude. So, Lauren, what are three things that you are grateful for today in my living room? Today in your living room. Um, I would say today I am grateful for that we're able to record this podcast. Mm-hmm. We were having some technical difficulties, so now we're we're good. So that's exciting. Um, another thing I am grateful for is that it's Friday. I love me some Fridays and getting to relax during the weekend because yeah. I am a homebody. And then I would say my last thing I am grateful for is I'm getting really excited because next week and we are leaving for a week-long cruise. Ooh, so we're going to exciting. Canada and Seattle and California. That is wonderful. Yes. How about you? I am grateful that we're starting this. I feel like it's kind of exciting and fun. I'm really grateful for that. Um, Speaking of technological issues, I am so grateful that I have a new printer. This was really stressful for me. My printer broke, like, catastrophically. (laughs) And I tried to fix it, and I spent, like, 45 minutes with the IT guy, who was actually wonderful. Canon customer service is way better than I expected it to be. Shout out. So they were great, and luckily it broke, like, two weeks before the warranty went out. So I just got sent a new printer, and I finally have it up and running, so that's, like... A big stress that has, like, dissipated now. Mm -hmm. Um, And one more thing. I am grateful for coffee. Ugh, I know. Specifically iced coffee. Fun fact, I am an iced beverage drinker pretty much exclusively. I almost never drink hot beverages. So iced coffee is my jam. I love me some coffee, too. And I am grateful for that. And we are grateful for you guys for listening to us rant for like an hour (laughs) as we do as we do um if you have any ideas of things that you want to hear about in the future let us know we're Mm -hmm. so open to researching different things um we want to hear how you feel like this episode went and certain things that we can improve on or certain things that you really liked we want to hear about that good stuff too um so i think I don't, I don't know, like, rate and review? Yeah, subscribe to our Subscribe, channel. tell this your friends. literally, like, the first episode. We filmed, like, the intro. intro. This yeah. is our first episode, so it's probably choppy. We're going to edit it and see how it goes. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, so, like, it's interesting because we haven't done anything to actually, like, make a channel page yet and upload, so we're, like, telling like, you to subscribe, Lord. but we're, like, <laughs> I think that'll be a thing that we will have an option for that we don't right now so this is very theoretical theoretically so this subscribe. is just like what people say to us on podcasts yeah so we're just repeating what you guys say yeah. promo <laughs> code um, murder promo code murder <laughs> <laughs> i know i was thinking about it too we're like and podcasts they have like certain things like they call their followers so mm-hmm. like obviously like with my favorite murder there's murderinos yes there are i listened to um chatty broads and they have like broads or broad squad love it what do you think ours would be i have no idea but i'm like curious to see if anybody like 
has a good name for our fans. That would be good. Or questions Let that you have know. for us as people. You know, if if you have a good one, maybe we'll send you something. I don't know. I don't know. We don't have merch, but maybe one maybe day if we, we do, we'll send you something. Who knows? Who knows where this is going? We have five listeners right now. Mm. We love all five of you. Maybe our psychos. <laughs> Just psychos. <laughs> our uh, silent lambs. We'll work on it. We'll work we'll on it. it up, it's guys. a work in progress. It's going to be okay, I promise you. Alright guys, well thanks for tuning in and thanks for getting spooky. We'll see you next time. Oh.